When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters. Mark Lepresti, managing director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Mascioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Our Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Thursday edition for July 20th, 2023. We are continuing our private jet ride giveaway with sponsor Verijet, the only low-cost solution for short-haul private aviation. This is the private jet company that operates a fleet of those beautiful and incredibly safe and advanced Cirrus Vision Jets. They are visually beautiful, technologically advanced. They have a parachute, famously, artificial intelligence-based landing system. I'll tell you, Michael, I flew uh, in another terrific plane in a Pilatus PC-12 yesterday on a quick trip to Cincinnati for some meetings and to watch the incredible Ellie De La Cruz play ball. Uh, And I was missing our SF-50 Vision Jet. So uh, for all of our fantastic B3 Nation listeners, if you would like to learn what it's like to ride on a Cirrus SF50, go to verijet.com. I see that our show producer has popped the link up in the crow's nest. You'll see a sweepstakes page, a form. Also, I believe the link in the crow's nest. We will have to share your worst travel experience. Travel nightmares. We're looking for just a few sentences Tell us your worst travel experience. We'll be sharing some of them with participants at the end. And folks that share that travel nightmare are entered to win a ride on an SF-50 Vision Jet operated by our friends at Verijet. That's www.verijet.com. Hey, Mark, before we get going, can I just warn everybody, don't take the private jet ride because you'll never want to fly on a commercial airline again. (laughs) Yes. Or you turn into me, who flew a really fantastic private plane yesterday, that the Pilatus PC-12, which is not a jet, it's a turboprop, but it, but it's a turboprop that's got a jet-like feel to it. Um, and and I, I, was, I was complaining. Somebody on board with me was saying that I was being a diva because I thought the seats weren't as comfortable as the ones in the Cirrus, but that is what it is. Mark, Mark Lepresti, who would ever call you a diva? Let's be honest. Lots of people. Lots and lots of people. There's people. Mark Lepresti, 
I know there are. There's some. They just got to get to know you. They got There's nothing. You know, Diva's just another word for wish you were me. Um, guys, welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. Sorry we had a little tech issues. We seem to be having them lately, the Twitter gods. Maybe Elon's, you know, not paying enough attention to us. But this is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter spaces. We do it Tuesday. We do it Thursday. We do a weekend edition on Sunday. Always at 530 Eastern time. Always with the same market masters. But sometimes we have extra special guests. Always with an after show that you stick around for B3 Nation and you become part of it. So follow us at Get Rev Radio, tweet out the space, follow all the speakers. And we've got a fun show ahead of us today. Uh, We'll do our overview. We'll do our fantastic futures, but we're going to talk about the housing market. We're going to talk about Tesla. I think I put a curse on Tesla on our last show when I asked John if Tesla could keep rising. <laughs> we'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about NASDAQ you know, halting its cryptocurrency custody service. And we will have a What You Hiding Gary segment because Gary's going rogue in, front, in Congress calling crypto the Wild West. So let's just jump right into the fun. Mark Lepresti, as always, kick it off with your, with your, your big picture end of the week overview. Yeah, well, I'm not going to necessarily give the end of the week, but I'll give the end of Thursday uh, overview. Um, markets mixed to end the day here on this Thursday, July the 20th. The Dow closed up more than 100 points to make a nine-day winning streak, the longest winning streak since 2017. But actually, some muted numbers in the green for the Dow. It rose just 163 points, or less than half a percent, to close at 35 225 spot 18. The S&P down spot 68 to 4,534 spot 87. The tech-heavy NASDAQ pulled down, and we're going to cover this later, by a couple of our favorites, Tesla, Netflix. Uh, Definitely a little disappointing in the market's reaction to earnings and forward-looking guidance from both of those companies. The tech-heavy NASDAQ falling over 2% to finish the session up 14,063 spot 31. Um, This is actually the widest outperformance in the Dow versus the NASDAQ since February of 2022. A couple of uh, names in the Dow helped uh, close the Dow in the green. Dow uh, Johnson & Johnson. Up uh, just over 6% uh, after actually offering some pretty decent forward-looking guidance and beating analyst estimates in its earnings. Uh, Travelers, notwithstanding concerns about El Nino and other weather-related potential impact on Q3 and 4 of this year for the big insurers, Traveler posting very good beat estimates, both top and bottom line for Q2. Those shares up helping bring the Dow along with it. But really, uh, Rob, the big story today was some serious, serious uh, losses in in one of my favorite names in in Tesla. We'll we'll talk about why that happened. Uh, Netflix, uh, uh, both of these companies actually uh, reported numbers that uh, were arguably pretty pretty good. But of course, it's about that forward looking that matters these days. Um, and uh, boy, oh boy, the roller coaster ride in uh, the, the Uber app of used cars, Carvana. I know we're going to talk about that later. Looking forward to it. Dr. J, what had your uh, uh, spidey sense tingling today as you watched the markets move? Well, a heck of a lot, Mark. Uh, great job there, sir. Um, today, it was really kind of a. A mixed bag in many respects, of course, because we had uh, both 
the uh, uh, Tesla and Netflix, not debacles, but certainly uh, not what the bulls had hoped for. Uh, anytime you see that much stock changing hands on big down days, you know there were folks that were throwing in the towel. I think they were mainly throwing in uh, and uh, – if you will, Mark, taking profits because both of them were up by their 52-week highs. But um, the fact that we had existing home sales down, um, and that's, of course, not what D.R. Horton, um, Lennar, Pulte, uh, it's not what those guys are producing because they're selling new homes. Um, the... the uh, existing home sales are a completely different thing than what the uh, home builders are selling, as I think all of you on the uh, call understand. Um, I thought that the Tesla earnings were interesting. I say that, Mark, because 91 cents versus 83, that's not horrible, nor was the revenue which matched. Um, but the fact that Elon is still saying that he might apply more pressure to his competitors through these price cuts, I think that was something that we can all kind of plan on. And that means that uh, they're going to they're going to test the metal of these competitors, everybody from Ford to General Motors and even the other, you know, massive producers of automobiles, which would be uh, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, and so forth. If he is cutting prices when they're struggling to produce EVs, um, this is something that, uh, well, quite frankly, Mark, um, competitors do to each other all the time, but it is not something that is generally... Uh, uh, viewed very positively because he has 10 to 1, uh, easily 10 to 1, uh, the number of vehicles out there on a quarterly basis versus these other guys. So it would seem to me that he is uh, crushing his competitors because he can. Um, and I got to think sooner or later, somebody takes a dim view of that. Um, as far as Netflix, Mark, I thought that the and uh, Rob, I thought that the uh, operating margins uh, moving up dramatically to uh, about twenty two and a half percent from nineteen point eight percent. That is massive for a company as big as Netflix. But we all know why, because many of the people who no longer could watch Netflix, but still hadn't finished their binging and so forth, wanted to uh, subscribe themselves. They had been tracked by Netflix. Netflix knew there were so many of these folks that were piggybacking on these uh, subscriptions of their parents, their friends, whatever, uh, that this was manna from heaven from or for Netflix, but it didn't uh, result in the stock going significantly higher. Why? Well, they miss, still missed on revenue. Um, their guide for Q3 is uh, pretty substantial. It's at least 10% higher than what the street was looking for. But the, the fact that the streaming ads, a lot of them 
were in the, uh, uh, well, ad-supported space, Mark, I think was why we saw Netflix doing what it did today, which both Netflix and Tesla folks, I know everybody on the call knows this, but they were both uh, cracked pretty hard today. And if I could, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, Um, one more to throw out. I don't really need to cover Infosys. We can talk about that during the show later on and so forth, what the implications are of a really big outsourced giant and what they're uh, seeing and feeling from their customer base. We'll talk about that. But I really like the Zion, Z-I-O-N, because we know they're a regional bank, Salt Lake City-based. You know, there's not been a national bank, really, bank based in Salt Lake City. But they're a very strong regional player. They were hurt during the uh, March time frame in particular by the folks that were really looking to uh, uh, feast on the fear, uh, which many of us do during times of fear, just like we um, feast on uh, the uh, bullish activity when that presents itself. In March, Rob, it was all bearish all the time. Didn't matter if it was Silvergate. Didn't matter if it was Silicon Valley Bank. You know, these stocks were being taken apart. Many of them, those two that I mentioned, for instance, um, basically sold off, perhaps maybe with the bathwater, but that's to the benefit of uh, Wells Fargo, of J.P. Morgan, of any of the buyers. Um, But many of those regional banks were just clocked by 60, 70, 80, 90 percent. These guys were actually adding subs in the subsequent quarter, not subs, uh, depositors in the subsequent quarter. And that was a very bullish thing. So uh, I thought, Rob, that that was just an incredibly bullish uh, report from Zion. Uh, It certainly seems like they're a survivor and then some. And we had a lot of unusual activity in the name. And I'd encourage everybody on the call to check out marketrebellion.com forward slash bang for uh, a buy one, get one free. But I'll just kind of leave it there with that, Rob. We'd welcome any and all of you to join. Hey, John, John, quick question. And I see, Mark, uh, you want to jump in on this. Um, do you think Zion's an outlier as a regional bank overall? Or do you think there's another, you know, other regional banks that are going to kind of bounce back a little stronger. I think Western Alliance Bank Corp, Rob, I think so many of the regionals, uh, we all kind of understand, even though we've talked about it, I think all all of the folks that are real TradFi folks on the call understand why these stocks were hit. Um, And they were hit because uh, their access to capital in the short term was not as good as the demand from the depositors. And that's always a problem with banks. You're going to see runs on banks when that happens. Uh, I, I think it was unfair in most cases for most of these other stocks that were so heavily hit, um, everything from Silvergate to Silicon Valley Bank, and you know probably uh, I could name 10 others that should not have been uh, put to the brink of being taken out on any given weekend, but they were robbed just because 
the uh, the fear factor was so high in those stocks, and now I think those stocks look like the foolish people were the people that sold, not the people uh, that were buyers. Interesting, Mark Lepresti. Yeah, I do want to point out, Rob, um, and and we like to you know, take the victory lap as often as we put the tail between the legs. But we did cover this on Friday's show when we were doing the week. Excuse me, on Sunday's show when we were doing the week ahead that we did have indications, both trader chatter, uh, you know, folks that um, do this professionally for a living. Uh, you know, we talk uh, often as, as even John and I did uh, on, on Tuesday, have dinner with some of the guys that run some of the big execution and, and custodial desks. And they really see a lot of the flow that you don't hear about on CNBC. Um, and and we, we saw indications and, and maybe producer Patrick can pull up the audio. But we did see indications that the regionals were going to do pretty well when they reported this week. I was dubious. I wasn't convinced. But it turned out to be true. Um, and, I, and I find that to be really, really interesting. And I think it's not just because they were oversold in conjunction with the, the banking crisis or debacle or whatever we're calling it now. I, you know, maybe J-Pow is going to come around and tell me don't don't call it a crisis, um, which is maybe the next T-shirt that I'm going to get made up and, and sell. Um, but but I find it I find it very interesting to see that we had some of this uh, rebound in the regionals. And, and John, uh, did, did you cover Fantastic Futures because? You know, with all of the agricultural commodities uh, trending higher, which, by the way, um, we've talked about this before as well. We talk about trends, we talk about historical trends. Agricultural commodities actually tend to trend higher when the Fed is close to the end of an interest rate increase campaign. Very interesting. A lot of reasons behind that, which maybe we'll cover on another show. But what the heck's going on with coffee? Exactly, Mark. Um it's down 19% in a month. I mean, coffee's just been cracked. Um, and uh, yet, I, I imagine most of us uh, have been paying more for our cup of joe for that jolt in the morning. Um, whether you're grinding it yourself, whether you're buying your beans already ground, or whether you're buying your coffee from Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, you're paying more. Um, and that's interesting, but it's also something that we talk about here on this program a lot, which is this is one of the, I don't know if nefarious covers it, but this is one of the things that happens when people are uh, faced with inflationary pressures. Those pressures don't just immediately uh, abate. They don't just immediately stop and drop. Um, instead, uh, people look at, well, let's kind of test and see. Can we put 13 ounces instead of 15 ounces in the same box? And of course, change the, uh, they're not going to lie to you. They're not going to say there's 15 ounces of cereal, for instance, in a box of something with oats or corn or rice or whatever it might be. But they're going to see whether or not that same size box um, printed with a 13-ounce instead of 15-ounce will still get them the same price as the 15-ounce, meaning they made up for the uh, inflation in at least what it was several months ago. And I think that's what's happening in coffee, Mark. I think they're still charging as if coffee were substantially 20, 25% higher 
than where it is right now. And anybody listening who is going into a store, um, I, I defy you to find me other than at perhaps TJ Maxx or Marshall's a, uh, a coffee uh, that you drink regularly that is cheaper now uh, because of this drop. No, it's just like it's very sticky. It's sticky in gasoline prices at the pump. It's sticky in coffee. It's going to be sticky at McDonald's with increased prices of potatoes and meat and fish. Um, they stay up a lot longer than you'd expect. Interesting, interesting. All right, let's get a crypto overview. Alex Massioli, you're waiting quietly in the wings. What's the latest? What's the latest on our crypto markets today? What's going on, Rob? How are you today? Um, things, oh, thank you. Sorry, uh, <laughs> things, we're, we're pretty, uh, we've been pretty range bound on 24 hour. Uh, listen, Bitcoin's staying at 29,841. It's, uh, it's just down just under par. I mean, it's, it's really having trouble hitting that 30,000 optical level that we've spoken about all week. Uh, what I will say though is the sentiment score on Bitcoin has risen to 71 out of 100. Um, so, I mean, we do have some analysts looking for a breakout. We're, we're cautiously observing. Uh, Ethereum is at 1894 right now. Uh, it's just over par, and it's uh, it's it's more of a bullish neutral at 45 out of 100 on the TradeTheChain.com dashboards. Uh, total market cap 1.2 trillion, uh, even for the day. 37 billion traded on the day, which uh, is, is, it's a little up. Uh, right now, we're seeing a lot of green in the one hour time frame. Um, we're mixed on the 24 hour. Uh, let's see here Bitcoin, 14.6 billion trading volume, still down 8% versus average. Uh, as well as Ethereum, um, we have Ethereum dropping tweed volume, which is huge, down 17%. But Trading volume is up six, nearly six percent, at five point nine five percent versus average. Um, now we do have that uh, that negative neutral sentiment score that I mentioned earlier in Ethereum. So we're seeing some volatility. We'll see where what directionality that goes. But I do have some outliers. REP, REP, uh, that's Augur, up thirty seven percent on the day. Link which is uh, a, a lot of people link is a very popular uh, DeFi project up 18.71% for the day. Um, XLM, one of the hottest on Twitter plus 445% today on social metrics up 3.74% on price. So uh, we do have some action, but the blue chips are a little bit range Brown uh, range bound. And we're waiting for uh, some signals in the track by market, um, which I'd like uh, uh, Nick to kind of give an overview on. Jump in, Nick Mancini from the research desk of Trade the Chain. Yes, sir. And Alex did make a little bit of a Freudian slip there. Uh, while crypto is range bound, I personally am rage bound uh, due to the lack of uh, the volatility <laughs> that I so much desire. But to give you guys kind of an overview on where prices are looking, um, I mean, if you've been looking at the Bitcoin chart, you know, getting closer and closer to that, uh, you know, below 29.5 number, but it is still holding and that is still the line in the sand for bearish volatility. So as soon as that 
breaks 29.5 with confidence, we will enter shorts. We've been scalping around uh, over the past couple of days, but closing quickly as these ranges are tight. And, you know, we mentioned the Monday range, um, you know, uh, earlier, every, pretty much every week, but we emphasized it on, on one of the previous sessions over the last couple of episodes. And we've actually been bound to the Monday range for pretty much um, most of the week. So it's a very tight week. And one signal I will say, there's actually two signals is a equities came off pretty strong today, uh, which typically, which it has been, and, and may be a signal that crypto, uh, may be pulling back a little bit as well. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, Alex mentioned, you know, Augur and link and, and a few other currencies. These are, these are what we call dino coins. They've been around for a very long time. They have, you know, interesting communities, but when these coins t- tend to kind of quote unquote pump out of nowhere, um, I do put my radar up and say, Hmm, you know, with Bitcoin dripping lower and these coins getting some some random life into them, that could be you know the end of the rally kind of uh, of liquidity uh, sucking, if you will, by the market makers and high net worth individuals. So um, the line in the sand is twenty nine five for Bitcoin, and we're watching that very closely. I will say we could see a little bit of a buyback into tomorrow's session. We've seen a lot of buying around the end of uh, end of day candle, which happens at uh, eight p.m. Eastern. So watch out for a little bit of bullishness into that candle, but still watching twenty And then on Ethereum, it's a little bit less uh, easy to trade, in my opinion. But if we do get below uh, the 1830 level, uh, I do think that we will end up trading into the 1700s or possibly the 1600s as Ethereum has been weaker than Bitcoin throughout much of the year. So nothing uh, nothing I wish I could give you today, but I, I will say over the next several hours, I, I do expect a couple of green candles, but we're still actually you know looking at shorts as likely the most opportune option with equities pulling back a little bit. Interesting, Nick. Green candles for the orange pill. We'll, we will see. We will see if they that that's your prediction. We'll see. We'll see what happens with it. Um, we'll talk a little more um, in the crypto section about all of this. Um, I want to just remind everybody, in case you don't know where you landed, you're at Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. Glad to have you listening. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space. Follow our hosts. And everybody who speaks on on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, we do it every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Sunday at 5.30 Eastern time. And we are starting to introduce a video version. We actually were on the NASDAQ. I'm losing track of the days, but I believe it was Monday. We were on the floor of the NASDAQ. Um, and and did a show from there, which we're, we will be putting out. It was a lot of fun. I think we all enjoyed being there. I hope we didn't. We I hope we didn't curse the market and Nasdaq taking a little dive after we left. No, no fault of ours. That said, Mark Lepresti, the housing market is a tough place to be. Home sales have ground to a halt. You know, first time buyers, forget about it. But you've got a positive side on this with some blowout numbers on new home construction. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, listen, um, you know, this goes back to part of John's macro minute earlier when he reported on the existing home sales numbers falling 3.3% in June, weaker even than was expected. I'm surprised that we even had any existing home sales because, as we know, a related statistic of turnover, meaning how long it takes for a home that's already been purchased to sell, right? How long things stay on the market um, and, and the rate of turnover of existing homes is at, I think, a historic low since they've been tracking it. 
Um, and we know what the reasons are for that, right? Um, why sell if you're if you have a mortgage that's locked into a good rate? Uh, why would you give that up by by selling and subject yourself to the you know substantially higher uh, interest rates? Um, why uh, sell and become a buyer in a market that, apart from new homes, has such remarkably and historically limited liquidity when it comes to existing homes? And you know, I, I'm starting starting. Uh, starting to think that maybe this is the yield curve inversion, um, the housing market version of the yield curve inversion, where we have existing home sales falling, barely moving, lowest turnover. But yet, and these are the numbers that I'm going to talk about, this the whole previous minute and a half was just a big tease. New home construction exploding. U.S. construction new homes in the United States rose 22%. Month over month, that was the highest number of new foundations being laid down, meaning housing starts, since April of last year. Home builders feeling bullish and smiling, as indicated from their earnings. We've still got more home builders to report as we get through um, earnings season. But this is a real uh, interesting tale of two cities here from the perspective of existing homes versus new homes. The only supply of any significance in the housing market for home buyers, new or otherwise, are new homes. That's a good thing. But even new home builders and sellers, the Havnanians of the world, the D.R. Hortons of the world, still have to contend with buyers facing these horrendous J. Powell-inspired interest rates. And one interesting thing that some of these home builders and the larger development builders are doing is they're offering financial incentives and offsets to try to help bring down the impact of those interest rates. It's going to be interesting to see whether or not it's enough to make a significant difference in the pace of home sales. But we got a housing crisis in this country. It's not getting better. Rents are at all-time highs in cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. Ironically, the same ones that uh, uh, crime is at an all-time high, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I want to get uh, John's take on this. John, what what's your what have I left out, and what do you make of this dichotomy between existing homes and new home sales, and how do you think it shakes out? Um, I think – uh, that for the most part, Mark, um, at this level of financing, um, we we all know and we all suspect that if you're able to uh, pay cash for a home, you can get a better deal. Um, you're not going to get that better deal from home builders because they have no inventory. So your only shot at getting that better deal is the existing home, the home that has been, as you say, Mark, hanging on the market for some period of time, perhaps as much as a year. Um, and can you get a better deal? In many cases, you can get a substantially better deal. Um, but I think the, the issue here is that the home builders have so precious little uh, inventory that they're able to be very uh, patient. Now, I don't think most of their homes are on the market very long that tests that patience, but I do think that they do have uh, a better shot at getting people in because, again, we're talking about a new home versus anything that has to be done to the existing home, even if the person is meticulous 
the existing home um, has some issues that uh, some of us might choose to change uh, rather than go with as it is. And we're going to price that into the price of that home. Um, now, you could also look at a DR Horton, Pulte, Lennar, whomever, um, home and say, well, I want to change this or that. But you do not have much flexibility with them because they have no inventory. So that, I think, is the issue, is if you have inventory, um, which existing homes do have competitive in inventory, um, they're in a different position, Mark, uh, as you and I both know, than the people who do not have that uh, inventory. Uh, John, I just want to say, and try to get those roosters in control. John's back in Puerto Rico, and uh, we have the, uh, the the B3 Barnyard. Wait a minute. Well, I came up with a new I'll show. I'll tell you it's this. The B3 Barnyard. I love this. I'll tell you this about the B3 Barnyard, Mark. That one that you're hearing is going to be brought to uh, dinner tonight with us, and that will ultimately result in him being a uh, chicken parm. <laughs> wow. Wow. We're killing off the we're killing off the bar. John oh my Eric. gosh. Oh my gosh. There it goes. John, it yeah, go ahead, Alex. No, I just want to say what's really important about, uh, you know, both mortgage rates, interest rates, the home inventory aspect of what's going on in the United States right now is that we still have 80 plus percent of uh, mortgage holders um, uh, uh, below that 5% mark, right? They have, and if you hear a calling in the background, that's John on my terrace, literally sounding like a rooster. Um, uh, but we still have 80 plus percent of people with mortgages with less than uh, 5% interest rate. And so the thing is, is that they don't wanna sell. They don't wanna turn over those houses uh, because they're looking at seven plus percent interest rate, so we're going to get a glut in inventory um, that's going to be, you know, pretty massive to the market over the course of the next year or so. I think unless uh, Jay Powell and the Fed get their act together and are able to reduce that number, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear about what Mark and John have to say about that. But I, I mean, that's the truth right now. Yeah, well, it, it, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting time, I, guys. I want to move us on because we, I want to move on if that's all right. I want to jump into another topic so we can get through because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, I, John Nigerian, back to you about look, we, you're, you've been a Tesla bull as is Mark, as has Alex, but you know we 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 called Netflix and Tesla last week or two days ago, and we're saying how they were on such strong runs. It's kind of like the announcer, and you know who's like he hasn't thrown an interception in 14 games, and the next play he throws an interception. Like did did we curse Tesla and Netflix? No, um, but uh, I think we also mentioned how much they were up. Um, you know, Netflix, 120%, Tesla, 160%, but the Tesla numbers are just this year. Um, Netflix, that's year over year. Um, both of them phenomenal performers. Um, I, uh, I thought that we would see perhaps 460, um, I'm sorry, 260 on this downward move, Rob, in Tesla. And, uh, you know, we, we had a 42, 43 uh, point drop out of Netflix, but it's in the several hundred dollar range. I think we're going to get some great opportunities again 
but again, there are no one-day events. Uh, the event is catalyst by uh, a single-day event, and that was earnings. And that was right. whether or not Elon is going to keep the pressure on his competitors, which more or less he said, Rob, he's going to do. He is going to keep uh, cutting price, which means margins drop, which means that Ford and General Motors and everybody else domestically and foreign that competes against Elon is going to be faced with, well, how much are we willing to lose? How many billion dollars are we willing to lose? They've all lost billions so far competing against him. He has made billions competing against them because, of course, he gets the uh, EV credits. He buys and sells those credits. And that is manna from heaven for Mr. Musk. I think that continues, quite frankly, Rob. Um, as far as uh, Netflix, I think you're going to continue to see um, the sharing cut and the the people having to buy uh, their own subscriptions or at, at a minimum buy, the, buy a subscription that is uh, funded in part by advertisement. And I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure I know, though, about most of the folks on the call. If you're watching a movie, the last thing you like is to have that movie interrupted by a commercial. As much as you might like to save five or six bucks a month, if you really want that show, that movie, that series, you're going to uh, pay that little bit extra to see it straight through, Rob, rather than uh, have it interrupted by commercial. Interesting. Alex, let me bring you into this for a second. You're a car guy. I mean, at Tesla's, you know, we talked about how, you know, companies were like exceeding, you know, the market's expectations. And so they forecasted low and they got rewarded for that. Here, Tesla reports a profit above what the street estimates, right? Their revenue beats the street's consensus and yet the stock drops. Honestly, not my forte when it comes to this. EVs have been taking a dump for a while. And, uh, you know, I'd go to Mark on this for the Tesla overview. Okay, I just wanted to keep you in the loop. I, I know you're a car guy. Mark, you want to weigh in on that thought? I know you've talked about it. I know it's not literally one or the other, but it is interesting that they Yeah, no, listen, this, this is not the way I think the stock should be performing. And if you look at some of the comments – that uh, you know have been made around the reasons for this because he was not specific enough about the Cybertruck launch, or he was not you know he was he was uh, vague about these you know robot driven auto taxis, autopilot uh, autonomous taxis at some point in time in the future. I, I don't care. I mean, revenue was up almost fifty percent year over year. It was a massive beak. Massive, massive beat. I mean, ninety-one cents a share versus eighty-two is a is a big margin. Um, I think if this was another stock that was not as uh, uh, controversial and hated as much as uh, Tesla and Elon Musk is for a variety of different reasons, if the stock was not on the run that it has that it has been. Um, and that people got nervous and started taking profit, as we saw, you know, seller selling begets selling, Rob, particularly when the computers get involved and those algorithms, they start seeing selling pressure building and then it starts to become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and and I, I think this is, uh, 
This is selling that does not uh, fit entirely um, with with what these numbers said. I I, I really really don't. Um, and one thing that's not been mentioned, and, and we have a question from uh, a member of our audience, and you know who you are, um, and good to see you, uh, Doc. It's always a pleasure. Not Dr. J, another famous doctor who's uh, in the audience, and he asked um, whether or not we thought that the news from uh, today uh, that I think got lost in the bigger uh, news around earnings about Tesla – in talks to do a significant license agreement with an unnamed major OEM, that's an original equipment manufacturer in uh, uh, car parlance, of licensing its FSD software. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that FSD is full self-driving. And it seems like what we're hearing and looking at the tea leaves in the news here that um, it is it's it's likely to happen. It's not a done deal. Again, the name of the OEM is not disclosed. Um, I suspect based on reading the tea leaves that I'm seeing and traders that I'm talking to that this will happen. And I think that's another reason to be bullish on on Tesla's future. It's similar to all of these major OEMs and the announcements that we have leading into today's earnings in the past weeks about other companies that also make EVs signing on to be part of Tesla's charging infrastructure. This is a, this is a market domination uh, uh, attempt on, on Elon's part. There's nobody else that's better suited to actually make it happen. John intimated earlier one of the reasons why it may have some peril associated with that, and that's, of course, from our friends at the FTC, the same ones trying to take down your uh, Activision Blizzard Microsoft deal, which, of course, you probably saw in the news yesterday in between shows. The deal deadline was extended, uh, I believe, to accommodate talks with the FTC uh, so that they do not appeal that famous Ninth Circuit ruling uh, that was actually ruled in favor of the deal recently. Um, so I, I think the stock is – I think you're going to see the stock bounce in the other direction tomorrow. I think it's being oversold. Interesting. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, 5.30 Eastern Time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space. We are rocking through stuff, so I'm going to move to some crypto stuff, Alex, because I don't like that you're not more in the conversation. Sorry to throw you the curveball on the cars, but Alex is a car guy. Do not forget, he was an actual race car driver back in the day. So, Alex, what's going on with NASDAQ? I mean, we were just on the floor of NASDAQ, right? They, you know, they were planning a launch for a, a crypto custody service for a while, and now they're suspending it. Clearly, I'm sure that has something to do with Gary Gensler. And they're like, this is dangerous waters. Am I right? Wrong? What's the story? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's, um, it, it, it's interesting indeed from the institutional side. Listen, they have... Uh, they've had permission to be in custody for a while. Um, Back has been uh, one of the big, uh, one of the big broker dealers on the future side with uh, Nicey and them for a while. Um, I, you know, them playing hard to get is something that's interesting, and I don't know if it's part of a re- behind the scenes regulation plan to kind of let the uh, the federally charted banks. Um, kind of rise to the top with the, crypt- the crypto custody. As, as we all know, about two and a half years ago, they were given uh, automatic uh, approval in order to do so. 
Um, so, you know, with NASDAQ, I think it may be just within their business sense that they don't see it fitting in with what they do. Um, this also could be, if I had to put my tin hat on, something to do with maybe a possible exchange play uh, in where they don't want to be the primary custodian. But who knows? I, I don't think NASDAQ has been putting a, a lot of effort into this, uh, to be honest with you. So I don't think it's, you know, entirely uh, some sort of uh, catalyst into a thought-provoking conversation, to be honest. Well, do, do you – so, do, I mean, I guess what I'm curious is if, you know, you're looking at these, these you know, Bitcoin ETFs, right? They'd put those on the NASDAQ, right? I mean, w- w- isn't that where they would be? That's correct. But then again, if we're talking about ETFs that are listed on NASDAQ, why would we have the underlying asset custody with the person that's listing them too, right? So it could be a conflict of interest area that we're talking about here and putting up some Chinese walls. Um, and, and that would make all the sense in the world when it comes to these ETF filings that have all been redone and submitted uh, for approval. So I could see that play happening as well. Is your gut sense that NASDAQ probably does do this eventually? I, I, I don't see them custing, to be honest with you. I, maybe I'm, I'm missing something in front of me, but um, honestly, I don't see them custing. I don't see them, uh, you know, exerting those resources in order to do it when they are going to facilitate uh, the possibility of, of spot ETFs being exchanged. Um, I, I think maybe from a regulatory point of view, the conflict of interest might be too tight. You know, Alex, I, I never really understood this. This is not what they do in the TradFi world. Um, they have such an incredible market share in the TradFi world, of course, being one of the biggest exchanges in the United States. They don't try to do custody as well for, I think, reasons that are probably obvious to most of our listeners. So this one never really made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and I think that it was a combination of let's not get some regulatory heat, right? They are looking at increased competition for technology listings with the CBOs acquisition of the NEO, the Canadian exchange. I think that's got to be on the minds of some of the biz dev people or our friends over at the NASDAQ. And a huge thanks to them again. Uh, for hosting, you know, we did not only be three from the NASDAQ, but under our fantastic new partnership, we also did two episodes, live episodes of the Rebel's Edge, which was absolutely fantastic. Got to do that with my brother, John, Dr. J Nigerian, uh, making uh, brother Pete Nigerian jealous. But it was great. Good programming. If you haven't seen it, go over to our YouTube channel, put in the Rebel's Edge and you can have it come right up. You'll enjoy watching it. Um, but I think this was also, you know, why? Uh, incur the regulatory heat at the same time that they are vying for uh, the spot ETFs to list there. So I think that's really what was going on. Interesting, interesting. Well, listen, and and we'll keep our eye on it like we do everything else. It is time to talk about, I wish we had music for this segment. What's your hiding, Gary? Today, Gary Gensler, who, um, you know, seems to just dig himself deeper into this, has, instead of hiding anything, he's gone all in, um, going before the U.S. Senate Committee on Appropriations. Did he actually do it or was just his prepared remarks out? I didn't hear it. I I see what he said, but either way, he he, he he called it. Prepared remarks, yes. That he, he, he was read there. from okay. prepared remarks, right. 
but no. So he basically called, you know, crypto the Wild West, which I can see you can make the argument that there it's a bit of a Wild West. I would argue that Gary Gensler may be a big part of that, that he's he's actually causing it, Alex. But that said, he's concerned that we need it's, it's ironic in a sense. He needs more regulation. But, you know, again, he's already clearly regulating by enforcement. So what do you make big picture, Alex? Start with you of Gensler's remarks. <laughs> well, Gensler had some interesting remarks. I'm going to let Nick uh, run the opening on this one because we were chatting about this earlier on our Trading Rebellion show. And I got to say, um, Nick's not too happy about, uh, you know, what the feeling looks like. Yeah, more 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 internal rage, Alex. You're correct there. Um, I think I think the one thing about uh, Gary's, you know, he, just use his words directly, quote unquote, rife with non-compliance or investors that put hard-earned assets at risk in a highly speculative asset class. Now, let's just break that down. Rife with non-compliance. Non-compliance with what? You know, there, there's multiple court cases out there that legitimately prove the lack of uh, the ability to comply with regulation that does not fit in the category. And we just had a judge say that XRP is not a security for the retail market. So, Gary, and, and, and I think, you know, I don't want to get too political here, but there does come a time where politicians stick to that beat and they start to dig themselves further into a hole because they continue to go against the courts and, and, and what the judicial system System has ruled on. So it's frustrating there. And then just to talk about highly speculative asset class and investors losing money, I watched a litany of tech stocks drop 70%. I mean, I, this, this is not a joke. So if he's talking about hard earned investors, I watch pension funds, I watch hedge funds, I watch teachers, I watched, you know, retail investors lose insane amounts of money in the quote unquote regulated market. And and so to, to just to just lob all of that at crypto and say, we're the idiots, we're the bad guys when the same stuff is going on in your industry that you you still can't regulate properly and you want to stick us in a box you know it, it's I hate to I hate to get on my my soapbox here but it's just when when you get hit with lies and misinformation from the people who are in leadership it's just really the biggest smack in the face and, and it really gets you revved up and going because uh, because who who would lie to your face like that it's it's crazy Nick let the real rage out come on we want to hear it Alex Alex to Nick's point to, to the to use his own words Investors put hard-earned assets at risk in a highly speculative asset class. Well, what's BlackRock about to do? Has Gary opened his eyes? Fidelity, are they about to just put everybody's hard-earned assets at work in total speculation? It literally seems like the guy is, is like living in a different world than the one we're all in. It, it seems like a two-tiered system of regulation, honestly, right, Rob? I mean, here we are talking about um, spot ETF not being approved for the last four years because of uh, extreme volatility. Uh, yet they 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 let futures ETFs uh, go in, which is even more speculative. Um, and not to mention during that time period, uh, equities have uh, in, have actually endured more uh, volatility uh, during more sessions than Bitcoin has. Um, so, you know, on one end, he's saying, listen, we're, we're not letting you do this because of, of the asset class being volatile. But on the other end, they're letting 
what I call the new J.P. Morgan. I'm referring to uh, back at the beginning of last century uh, when the great leaders of banks and J.P. Morgan were called on to bail out the U.S. economy, which is basically what BlackRock is now uh, saying, hey, listen, um, you know, we're, we're going to let you open up $30 trillion of money to the system from pensions, retirees and everybody else. But when it comes to somebody like Coinbase and Brian Armstrong and all the other uh, good actors in this space, listen, you don't get anywhere. And, and I find it uh, I find it absurd, to be honest with you. So there is an underlying rage when it comes to um, who gets to be able to get rules made for them and who doesn't. And, and further to Alex's point there, and maybe Mark saw this as well, because I just saw this on the Newswire, I think, 24 to 48 hours ago. The SEC was asked to make a comment about regulation or suggestion about regulation towards the leveraged loan industry. The leveraged loan industry is a $1 trillion market, so about the size of crypto. Guess what Gary Gensler decided to do? He said, you know, we don't need to make any comments. Everything looks fine over there. You don't need regulation for leveraged loans. Um, but of course, he's expending all of the capital, time, and money towards the uh, regulating the crypto industry and not providing guidance, not providing recommendations to Congress. So, to what Alex said, two-tier and, justice system—it's—it's it's literal. It, it's literally right in front of our eyes. And, and Rob, I'm glad Nick is bringing this up, and 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 that I failed to because uh, when it comes to the leverage loan system, and you look historically at the leverage loan system, um, it is a hypocrisy to uh, borderline. Uh, illegal on what surmounts to people being prosecuted in, you know, consumer loan industry and stuff like that. It, it really, it, it almost charters into gray area. And the fact that uh, they have to be asked to respond, well, guess what? They've been asked to respond uh two or three times in the last six months alone by the courts. And it is some of the first times that the SEC has, and, and Mark touched on this, we all touched on this, uh, going back to the initial uh, Coinbase lawsuit, where it is so broadly written that it's like, hey, we're going to send you a Wells notice, and we're not exactly going to tell you what we're screwing you over for or about to penalize you for. Um, is so much so that the the court has had to ask or demand the SEC to respond to it, and and I find that to be egregious. It's, it's kind of like having a Latina girlfriend, Alex. It's like I'm not I'm mad at you. I want to tell you why go. I'm mad at you. I'm perfect I'm analogy. You did perfect something analogy. wrong. I'm not going to tell you what you did wrong, but know that I'm mad. Mark, Mark, a question for you. But Wow. Wow. Based on what he's saying, though, I keep coming back to this fundamental question. Does Gary Gensler on a mission to destroy crypto or I mean, if you're bringing in big institutional players with the, the ETS for Bitcoin, clearly you're going to be advancing that asset class. Is he simply incompetent and doesn't get it? Or is there another, you know, is there a tinfoil hat agenda here where it's intentional? This is not him being an idiot. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what. I, I think he, DDG, he doesn't give up. So let me make the Western noise. Can you say this again? Because I didn't get it. Well, you know when you say in the acronym IDGAF, that's yeah. I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares. I think he knows that he's lost so much credibility, even within the Congress. I think he knows he's a he's a lame duck SEC 
chair, uh, you know, while Sleepy Joe is in the White House. I think he knows, you know, he's getting his butt handed to him uh, by some of these court decisions. And yes, I know I was one of the people that was saying, don't, you know, party too much over the the XRP uh, ruling in the Southern District the other day. And I, I still think we shouldn't make too much of it, but it was definitely a slap upside, Gary, Gonzo Gary against those face. And I just don't think he gives a flying rooster noise. I think we shouldn't call him Gonzo Gary. I think that gives him too much credit. I'm going back to Poser Gary. Um, Alex, real quick before we wrap up, and John, your thoughts on this too. Just that we ending on Tesla here. You know, remember Elon Musk bought a lot of Bitcoin a couple of years back, and and then like in 21, I think, and then he sold it. He sold a big part of it off. And at the time last year, was like, it doesn't mean I'm down on Bitcoin. What what's the significance of that? And you know, why why you know? And Tesla still got a lot of digital assets on their balance sheet, right? They, they do. And, and Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's about $333 million, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, it's, not, it's it's currently a little less because of the price changes. I think it was at one point in time, uh, but it's, <laughs> it's about $184 million as we speak today. All right, all right, all right. We went through some price cuts here. Um, but the fact that they sold it the, the having time, has happened. The having is happening. Uh, the, the, the fact that they sold the first time, um, you know, listen, was it was just a fiduciary responsibility. It had nothing to do against Bitcoin. Um, I don't think there was any ill intentions in that. It was uh, they were going through a hyper growth stage. Uh, Tesla was uh, at the time, you know, Elon had a multi-tiered contract for compensation based on numbers hit. And they needed to achieve that. So uh, I know the Bitcoin maxis and, and, and some of the crypto guys got all bent out of shape when he sold. But it would have been nothing different than, say, uh, short-term treasuries or, or equities that they had on the balance sheet. The fact that he came out and specifically or Tesla came out and specifically said, listen, during Q2, we did not sell any Bitcoin was kind of to get ahead of those uh you know, those rumors and those feelings that uh, a lot of the crypto people felt the last time around. Um, I don't think that it was for any sort of uh, cause to be a Bitcoin maxi in, in the least. I think it was they just need the money off the balance sheet. Um, they had done what they need to do with the money they had on hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had they had good earnings results over the period. So um, I, I don't think it's a it moves the needle one way or another in the gossip territory, to be honest. Got it. Got it. And, and last thought, John Nigerian, um, based on what Alex is saying and bring this idea of the institutional players, the big ETFs, are we going to, you know, if, if BlackRock and Fidelity all start doing this, are we going to see more companies probably holding Bitcoin in their balance sheets, particularly tech companies? Are we going to see more companies, Rob, uh, have what? Holding more Bitcoin in their balance Absolutely, sheet. we you are. Know, like- in particular, foreign companies, Rob. Um, obviously, MicroStrategy, Riot, Mara are among the biggest domestic companies that will hold it. But sooner or later, we're going to have some of the big mega cap stocks like Apple, believe it or not, holding uh, Bitcoin in particular. Uh, but perhaps some other currencies that will come up in the short term. I don't think that this is something that's going away anytime soon. If I did, I wouldn't be in it. 
Um, but I, I do think that we're going to continue to see uh, some positive upside surge. Somebody send Gary Gensler the memo. John Nigerian, Alex Massioli, Marco Presti, Nick Mancini. Thank you guys all. B3 Nation, thank you for listening. It's Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. We will be back again Sunday, 5.30 Eastern Time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. And please follow all of our speakers. Thank you guys. A lot of fun. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lepresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.